0: Good evening and welcome to this evening's episode of The Mary Trump Show. I am thrilled and honored to have as my guest tonight, Soledad O'Brien, journalist, host of Matter of Fact, a correspondent for Real Sports with Brian Gumble, and executive producer of the extraordinary new Documentary: The rebellious life of Rosa Parks, which premiered on Peacock on October nineteenth, and is absolutely essential viewing. Soledad, thank you so much for joining me tonight. How are you?
1: I'm fantastic, thank you, and thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a good doc. We're really proud of it. you know, I think Rosa Parks is one of those people you think you know. <laughs> and right. and then you kind of realize, like, oh, actually, I don't know Rosa Parks at all. And everything I learned in seventh grade was was pretty not accurate. Uh, so it was a good project to work on.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, there are so many reasons people should be seeing this documentary. It's beautifully done. It's It's so relevant, which is tragic, yeah. actually. But something we need to discuss uh it's information all americans need to have but one of the things that struck me about the ways in which rosa park's story has been literally reduced to one very small moment in her life as as you know as as a, a as much of an impact as it had. It's kind uh, of accidental, right? Like one right. small moment and like, and
1: just, she was just a little tired from a long day. It was kind of this accidental civil rights hero, which of course is a complete uh, misrepresentation of her life and her work.
0: Yeah, and it, it's, it's a really good exemplar of how Americans, well, white Americans, have crafted uh, the teaching of the civil rights movement. We have this situation in which uh, a few individual figures like Rosa Parks have been singled out and, uh, again, mythologized in a way that completely undercuts their real contributions. Uh, You know, as Jesse Jackson said in his eulogy of Rosa Parks, she was a freedom fighter and she was a militant. You know, this was not some passive, quiet old lady. friends with the Black Panthers. She liked X right.
1: as much as she loved Dr. King, right? Which is right. a contradiction of sorts, but in her mind, she fully understood, you know, she supported them both, uh, you know, the people who were really willing to, um, consider, uh, violence and people who were focused on nonviolence. And I, I think in a way, um, her, her, the rebel side of her has been written out. And we were very curious in like, why, you know, my back in the day, I used to think so many things were unintentional and accidental. Yeah. And then as you get older, you're like, oh, it's all intentional. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, yeah. exactly, exactly that, like this idea of what, why is it so much easier to sell a palatable story about a woman who just one day got sick of it and accidentally, you know, kicked off the most successful boycott in history versus telling the hard story of someone who literally worked their entire adult life uh, in order to try to find justice for people, especially racial justice in this country? And you know, why is it the the second version not quite as palatable as the first?
0: Yeah, and I, I, I think again one one of the important things that this documentary illustrates is is that it's because of what Black people were fighting against, and it wasn't simply segregation, which was bad enough. It was the unremitting, unrelentless, and horrific violence they suffered at the hands of white Americans. And I think we're, we're seeing now how that has led us to this moment where after centuries, certainly, and, and in the decades of the uh, 20th century, white Americans have been unwilling to face their past. We have governors like DeSantis and others in red states wanting to completely erase the real history of America yeah
1: yeah I mean, and it's a lot of times I think journalists have helped them along. I mean, a lot of my work has been in trying to bring forward stories um and it's not always an easy sell you know mm-hmm. I, I i early on when we would do documentaries like Black in America and we would want to tell the story, people had videotaped themselves in their interactions with police, so this was you know what. 10 years ago. Uh, And, you know, and and it would be a hard sell to get that on TV news in some capacity, even in a doc series called Black in America, you know, because the sort of sense was like, well, we don't really know the whole story. We're not really sure. I mean, the police are saying this. And so I think journalists have often been very reluctant to embrace what has been well-known in the Black community around um, certain kinds of interactions and certain kind of histories um so yeah I, I i'm always just really curious about like setting the record straight in in the doc you know one of the things that i didn't know was that rosa parks one of her jobs was to take notes on people who had these very horrific you know um, yeah. things happen happened to them so she's going and taking the story down of reese taylor a woman who's raped by several white men um they say, we're going to kill you if if you tell anybody. And she goes and reports it and they, they still, nothing ever happens. And I remember, you know, hearing, so Rosa gets on a bus and goes quite into the rural part of the, uh, the country. And the sheriff's car is going back and forth while she's taking this woman's testimony. But, like, who sits there and takes a testimony that you know Nobody's gonna care about, right? Like it, it's never going anywhere. The case, no one is going to work for justice for Reese Taylor. No one is going to Reese knows, Rosa Parks knows, right? Like everybody's aware. And I always sort of love that part of the story because it does matter. I mean, to me, yeah. it's like this is why you become a journalist, because it actually does matter. Maybe, maybe at this moment in time it won't get the attention it deserves, but she's going to take those notes for posterity. Somebody someday somewhere will care about Reese's side of the story of her rape. And it just was so heartbreaking because, you know, there was so much violence and just, and so little expectation of justice. Right. I mean, yeah. And, and to still, to still fight on anyway is kind of remarkable.
0: That, that moment. uh, I agree. That was, that was one of the more powerful, um, moments in a very powerful documentary for that very reason these 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 are two women uh unsupported knowing that there is no justice here um doing the incredibly difficult work of creating the record knowing that it won't change anything for them mm. but and that was one of the things about Rosa Parks and we'll get into this in a little bit, but, you know, the work she did, at some point I think she knew that it had to be to get the next generation to understand why it was important for them to take up the fight. Uh, Did you see it that way? And I'm also curious, you know, what your thoughts are about her. Well, and again, it wasn't an evolution. This was not a woman who believed that nonviolent resistance was the way to go. Um, But what, what kind of impact do you think her willingness to be very direct about uh, the kinds of potentially off-putting or um, the, the kinds of strategies that might in the short run, uh, have a kind of backlash that, you know, typically you would want to avoid, but knowing that that was the only way that things could possibly get better. And even so without doing them, things were, were horrible. I mean, you know, she lived in Detroit during those riots. Uh, so given the fact that, um, she was really a solitary figure, which I find found kind of heartbreaking, yeah. right? Yeah,
1: it, it, well, you know, it was so interesting to me. I hadn't realized, I mean, I did once we started digging into the project, but that after the Montgomery bus boycott, she never worked again. She and her husband never worked again. They literally, there was just, the first time she had health insurance was when she joined John Conyers' staff. She'd been, right. uh, you know, organizing and agitating for 30 years and had and, and never had health insurance in her entire life. I mean, it was just such a, you just sort of think like, oh, well, uh, you know, the way the story goes, right? She sat, you had the bus boycott, it was resolved, everybody goes back to their places. And, and no, actually not for Rosa Parks. Um, she was uh, in a desperate poverty, actually, uh, for much of her life. And and a lot of the benefits that came to the folks who were working in the um uh, you know in this for civil rights really didn't accrue to her even though she held this position right everyone yeah. called you know the first lady and this and that but in terms of actual money in terms of actual support she had zero uh you know virtually none so yeah it's i I, I do think that it's just an interesting way of once you begin to understand that she was actually just a badass from the get-go And that her vision of what America could could be was was going to require something very aggressive in her mind. It's why she agreed to talk to students. You know, she was Rosa Parks. She was a famous Rosa Parks and she would agree to sit on juries and do all these things and also, you know, get honorary degrees for the work that she had done. Like she sort of, you know, understood that she had these these dual roles. And, you know, I, I guess for me, the only thing that I find frustrating about that is you hate for people to think that the battle for civil rights is one of just it's 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 just like a an, an stumbled upon accident, as opposed yeah. to it actually is a long long fight where people have to be very aware. It, it's it's not just one day one person does a thing and boy that sets everything into motion. It's it's yeah. actually a real long term decades long sowing the seeds and doing the work, which is a less charming story, I think. Yeah and a sweet little old lady gets tired and decides not to, you know, give up her seat. Um and and also yeah. that you know she was just hardcore about it and paid the price in many many ways.
0: Yeah, I, well, you know, the real version is certainly less palatable for those people who who don't want to be challenged. Um but what what was really fascinating and I didn't realize this actually uh about the the internal workings of the movement itself itself, but there were Many people outside of that, uh, Nelson Mandela, for example, and every university that gave Rosa Parks an honorary degree understood not just her value, but her status, right? She was the mother of the movement, basically. And yet, within the movement, as you said, she, got, she didn't get credit. Other people, men, <laughs> took credit. Other people, men, benefited financially and that was um really disturbing because it was just yet another reminder that uh it wasn't you know she was already dealing with having to fight as a black american but then within the movement that she was very responsible for if not creating then making successful uh she suffered as a woman and i I don't know that, has there been that much change <laughs> since then? I don't, there's
1: definitely not like, of knowledge about it. I mean, it, this was not the first time we now know in retrospect that the civil rights movement really wrote out the history of women. Yeah, You know, to the point, almost like you would have thought women weren't in it at all, um, except for some tiny little portions. And we know that not to be true. So some people have gone back and done histories. And because of that, I think there's just a a bigger sense of, We need accurate representation of how things are, who's really responsible, what really happened. It reminds me of during the Me Too movement, you know, that people were like, no, no, here's how it started. Like, let's not write out the people who have been doing this work for a while Mm -hmm. Um, or whenever there's... um, you know, bail reform, right? There's this idea that, you know, some celebrity walks through and they got it done. And you're like, well, actually there've been people on the ground who've been working at this for a long time. And it's really important to remember and name them because they, you know, they've been doing it. But yeah, it's, I think that was exactly part of what was going on in the civil rights movement. It was really misogynistic in a lot of ways, right? Just women were not given the credit. Uh, and, And sometimes people would say, well, they very much held support roles. And I would say, Yes. And they held support and yeah. they were also doing other kinds of leadership and they still didn't get support. So it's not just to- toiling away in the background. You know, that wasn't really the case. Um, it is it is sort of incredible to me that someone like Rosa Parks, whose story everybody knows, the idea that, you know, that they she and her husband made seven hundred dollars one year by evidence by their tax return is insane. Um and you have to wonder, like, did people not know that she was struggling? Her relatives said that, you know, she was proud. She never would have said anything. But, but you know, I, my experience is people always know. People know who's working. People know who's not working. People know. Um, she just never benefited from a thing that
0: she was very responsible for. Yeah. And people know if you're getting paid for work you're being asked to do or not. Uh, Absolutely. And as the documentary points out, there were times when she was traveling constantly. Uh, but pro bono. Uh, not getting compensated for her work. And as you said earlier, it wasn't until John Conyers hired her to be on his staff uh, that she actually had health insurance, which is both absurd and tragic uh, (laughs) that this woman who essentially was the face, acknowledged by the movement or not, of um, the fight, for equality in America, uh, is sort of a, a very <laughs> sad commentary and a damning indictment. And it makes me wonder, um, curious what you think of this, what would have happened? How things might've been, di- and I know this is speculation, but, uh, because we seem, this country seems to be so trapped in its inability to reckon with its past. Um, I wonder how things would have been different if Rosa Parks had been able and been supported had Mm. been able to take on the kind of leadership role uh and have that acknowledged Mm. and compensated
1: yeah it's a great question and i don't know that you'll ever know i do know when you know remember when they were literally eulogizing her and her body was laying its in in state At that very same time, they were overturning, the Supreme Court was overturning voting rights, right? Like, so literally on the left hand, you know, saying this, but on the right hand, literally doing the opposite. And so I... I think that's the big tragedy, right? And ultimately, yep. someone asked me the other day, you know, are you optimistic or pessimistic? And I'm like, I don't know both. You know, I think yep. there's tremendous reasons for optimism and then tremendous reasons for pessimism. I think this hypocrisy of one, you know, honoring Rosa Parks, but actually dishonoring and dismantling the very thing that she's known for doing, you know, is is um, kind of crazy.
0: That to me is worse than replacing uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg with Amy Coney Barrett, which is really quite horrific. Uh, just symbolically, um, so and and the fact that her statue, Rosa Brooks' statue, is of her sitting down, of course, um, which again distills her life into uh, a moment of passivity and and gets gets the gets it wrong it gets the story wrong and representation really matters and that's why i think that this documentary is so important and should be seen well it should be seen by everybody but you know it's one of those things that should be in schools we actually um, have, uh,
1: the 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 author of the book which upon which the doc is is based gene the harris has um written um, a, a children's book, um, a, a book for young adults as well. Oh, and so we were able to get a grant from uh, the Ford Foundation in order to be able to kind of extend the reach of the doc itself for this very reason. Like we can't say all these things and be like, thanks for watching. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right. we have to actually, what do you do to make sure that the next generation isn't limited like we were limited in in our understanding? Um, I, 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 I agree with you. I think there's so much power in history It's a lot of the work that I do um, trying to understand, well, why was this bridge built here? Why does this highway run through this neighborhood? Why does the highway not run through this neighborhood? Um, How come these people have no access to the highway? You know, and you begin to really realize that so many of the so much of the underpinnings of America are really very intentional and very biased and very discriminatory uh, at times. And so really digging into, like, why did we do what we do? I mean, learning that. Robert Moses, uh, you know, who really, when I grew up, we used to cut out of school and go to Jones Beach and all the yeah. places that Robert Moses really developed, you know, to keep people out from the. He did not want undesirables coming from New York City, uh, you know. He he made sure that the overpasses were too low for for big buses to come out, right? Like very intentional yeah. discrimination. And Rosa Parks said, you know. I was no more tired than I was any other at the end of any other work day. Right. I was just tired of being treated this way. Yeah. And I always thought like, oh, that's what she was trying to say, you know, and everyone literally misunderstood it. People just got it wrong. She was just she was just tired of white supremacy. She's like, I am yeah. tired of white supremacy, so I'm not getting up. Um, I think if people had heard that message. Might have been very different in how you know I'm not sure that she would be uh, eulogized um and and honored by George Bush and by all the colleges that she was honored like I might, you know, I think if people had kno- known how rebellious she was, it might have been a bit of a different story.
0: Yeah, I, I can't remember which historian it was, but uh this this really brilliant woman uh who was interviewed uh <laughs> says that, you know, if people had known who she really was, if people had seen Who she's sort of hanging out with? uh, They might have been a little bit scared, and I love that uh, because, as somebody else said, like that was sort of her superpower. Yeah, you know, she presented presents what I don't think she presented herself in any way except as who she was, but that got interpreted how people wanted it to be interpreted. Um, But you know, she was hanging out with people uh, like. Robert F. Williams, who founded the Black American Guard, uh, which advocated for arming Black citizens so they could defend themselves against the Ku Klux Klan. Right? Black Panthers, mm-hmm.
1: uh, Malcolm X. At the same time, Dr. King. I mean, contradictions and uh, this kind of led to this idea of this woman is much more nuanced and complicated than you know, yeah. what she was given credit for in a lot of ways. And I hadn't realized that the young woman who first sat on the bus, who got arrested, Clinic mm-hmm. um, knew Rosa Parks. She yeah. actually was, you know, they were connected. Yeah. Um, again, you know, it wasn't just someone did it first. And, you know, it it was this connection of people who were all working to ward justice. Um, yeah, it's it's a fascinating doc because it is history is so important. It's, I think, why we're seeing what we see today of people who are trying to rewrite history or remove parts of history or or pretend things happened in history that just did not happen at all. Um, you know, history is very powerful.
0: Yeah, and and you mentioned Robert Moses, and I think this is a, is something else that, that comes through in the documentary, that it wasn't only the overt violence, which was unspeakable, uh, and coordinated and also sanctioned by law enforcement and the government, et cetera. But it it was the social um, isolation and this social exclusion, like making it impossible for buses in New York to drive out to Long Island to go to the beach because most black people back then didn't own cars. They had to take the bus and Robert Moses, who I think is like the poster boy of institutionalized racism, made made that made it impossible for Black people to uh, enjoy any what any other American citizen could enjoy a day at the beach, and it also made it impossible difficult, if not impossible, for white and Black Americans to coexist. Um, so that's also. Uh, what we learn uh, in this documentary that that Rosa Parks not wasn't just fighting all of it, but she was, uh, in some ways, like a more of a victim of it than a lot of other people who were fighting yeah. the same fight.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly. I think that's exactly right. And and it's so insidious and it's so intentional.
0: You know, what I learned
1: about Robert Moses and that you know, having grown up in Long Island, right? So I knew yeah. all those landmarks very well. And you're just like oh my gosh, that wasn't accidental. That wasn't just like, oops, or it was just done so much, so many of these things, you know, the structural racism, right, are literally Mm -hmm. putting things in place very intentionally to keep people down. And um, yeah, that's exactly what Rosa Parks was fighting against. And I'm always amazed that she wasn't Disheartened. You know, you don't find a lot of interviews where she just says, like, I can't go on. You could yeah. probably go to the Twitter feed and find me saying I can't <laughs> go on like 50 times. <laughs> but like there's literally no place in all of her writings where she's sort of saying, That's it. I'm out. I just I can't do it anymore. Um and and, and I think we would be like, Oh, well, that's makes perfect sense i say
0: that at least 10 times a day to myself
1: here's why (laughs) hashtag here's why i'm leaving new york (laughs) Um, but you know you don't get the sense that for her it was something that you could move on from that it was just and and i think you're right there was no sense that it was gonna be solved in your lifetime like literally you know it's that Reese taylor we're doing this for us you're not getting justice. She knows, I, I know, you know, everybody knows, no justice will come of this. But one day, someone's going to look back at these notes and say, whatever did happen with this woman? And the fact that there is a record, uh, and it's the truth, and, it's, and it exists is important. And I think she was always sort of fighting for that, right? This idea of like, these things exist, they're here.
0: Yeah. And, you know, that also showed this willingness of hers to take on more burdens as if she needed more burdens and uh, with the understanding that it was for posterity and future generations. uh, But, I, you know, I think that she just didn't think stopping was an option. Uh, So, you know, why why complain if you know that you have to persevere? I don't know, but it is remarkable, remarkable what a what a human being she was you know what a titan it as her have <laughs> you said five one a hundred pounds soaking wet
1: <laughs> yeah no it's and it, and all played into that 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 story and that narrative right i think if she had been big and she had been loud and she had been you know all well, none of that would have worked and my guess yeah. is she probably wouldn't have been honored in the way she was um In a way, you know, it's all played into the narrative of I'm a grandmotherly
0: type figure who just one day, you know, we're bothering her. Yeah, and that cuts both ways. I mean, that just made me really sad, actually. Um,
1: Yeah, it does. It does. It uh, it actually, but there's some value in understanding that changing things takes time and takes work. Um, And it's not hashtags and, you know, hey, everybody show up on the Saturday to do this thing like, you know, democracy is worth fighting for justice is worth fighting for. But it's a long freaking haul done, you know, at every level. And uh, I think sometimes we we miss that message.
0: Yeah. and, And again, I don't think she was playing a role by any stretch of the imagination, but I do think she understood the value of being subversive. And that I think that is the uh, the long term strategy, Um, and you know every once in a while it does that reaches its limits, but uh, that can be incredibly effective. Um, Unfortunately, (laughs) we find ourselves living in a time that does feel, especially since uh, the Supreme Court ruling in Shelby v. Holder on the day Rosa Parks statue was unveiled which gutted the voting rights act and now it looks like they're gutting for the entire what, what whatever's left of it honestly um so are, do you see this as as sort of of a piece like it's it, it's a pretty unbroken arc um or is there is there a way that we can kind of change the narrative so we at least at the very least put the brakes on what seems to be the dismantling of i mean look you get rid of the voting rights act you get rid of american democracy
1: you know i think at the end of the day one of the biggest challenges with american democracy as much as i have an issue with the political press which i do often yes people have to understand what they have and they have to value it and they have to Vote to protect it, and I think that sometimes you don't necessarily get that coverage. All right, I think I think yep. I think voting is treated like a game and not something important at all levels. Certainly in terms of our coverage, but also in terms of you know what do you, you don't even get the day off, um, right. and so yeah, I think that we need certain things have woken up. I think some people, I, I, yep. I truly believe the election will show that more women and more young women have suddenly realized what's at stake. Maybe late in the game. Um, But I think there are lots of indications that Mm -hmm. you'll see those numbers increase. Um, And people will realize that, you know, again, these things aren't accidentally, you know, that rights are fought for, and deconstructing how civil rights are won, and how they're lost, um, you know, is very, they're always a long game, and they're very intentional. Um, So I, I, I always think that there's time. I always think that it requires people to be engaged with their democracy. I, I think the fact that we even, you know, I left, I used to work for CNN. I left there about 10 years ago, just under 10 years ago. And we never talked about democracy, right? right. But now we talk about it all the time. And right. I think that's important. Like, I think that's a big shift. Yeah. Um, we never used the words white, I did a dog I did nine Black and America documentaries. We never used the words white supremacy. Right. And stuff. <laughs> Very intentionally. I mean, yeah. One hand, people would tell me not to do it. And on the other hand, I was also like, well, who would even understand it? Like, oh my God, I do not take a whole half an hour to like divert over here to give an explainer. You know, now that conversation is so typical that we could have it, you know, you're having it in the evening news. So, so I do think there are some big shifts, um, but they take time and they require a populace to become engaged and they require journalists um, who cover politics to, to, to do a good job to serve their public and help them understand what's happening.
0: Yeah, sorry, I'm I'm smiling because one of my favorite things is your Twitter feed. Oh. Um,
1: I've got some people, young people, who are like, seriously, no, man. I, they all they think I ever did is Twitter. They're like, so yeah, I only know you. You. <laughs> you used to work at CNN. Well, it's
0: <laughs> that's very funny. Well, I know Twitter <laughs> doesn't pay any money. Bro. You realize, like, that's a free job. That's it not. I'm not monetized Twitter. No, but seriously, you're. It's like a masterclass in journalism because you don't just. Although one of my Recent favorite tweets of yours was a response to uh, a post by a mainstream journalist, and it w- you just wrote just so dumb.
1: I know it's <laughs> like an evergreen tweet. I love right? when people <laughs> write good, thoughtful things. So I'm like, oh, this is what I was trying to say. I wrote this mean thing that was kind of sassy and just, ugh. but this person wrote a a thousand word essay that's actually quite smart and what I was trying to say. <laughs> but it's
0: important to be that direct and. To be fair, that's those aren't the only kind of tweet. You you will point out an egregious misleading headline or um, a a poorly thought out take that a journalist has on something, and you'll ask the question: You know what is the problem here? You know what what was a better way? to and frame this
1: framing right framing yeah. is everything and i think once people yeah. realize like the power that the journalists have is in framing so let's do the testimony um by the uh young woman who talked about uh trump throwing the ketchup and you know you know what i'm talking about and yeah. i remember thinking um she has her testimony minutes later uh it was peter alexander actually i think of nb i think he's at nbc news i don't know uh who said you know he had his sources were saying what she was she was lying That, in fact, those people were going to testify to the exact opposite, right? So she's full of it, was basically what he was saying. And you sit there and think, like, you know, here's a reporter. Essentially, those people never came forward, right? There was no indication it was all wrong. But, um, you know, like... So the framing, what is the frame? What is the point? What is the reason? Why would people tell him this? Why is he pushing this theory? How does this help? Who are his sources? Who are, What can we learn by this information that we're getting when a story is told in this particular way? I always think um, you learn a lot about the journalist and you learn a lot about the power and also where are they coming from. Right. Even as they say, I'm not biased or whatever, you, you actually see how you frame a story is very much your 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 bias, your, your position on it. And so I often try to get people like, understand, ask yourself, why is the story being framed this way? Why is the story of a young woman who's shot by the police as she's, you know, as she's uh, running toward them, her dad had taken her hostage earlier, never really framed as the police shot her. Right. She's killed in her escape. You know? Yeah. And she's but, wearing a tactical vest or something. And it's not till days later that you begin to, the story begins to kind of come together like, Oh, Oh, so-and-so shot her. Um, You know, police involved. My favorite was always a police involved shooting. You're like, what does that mean? A police involved, you know, shooting. So I I like clarity and I like to understand what someone's point of view and what's their framing, because that's going to give me a lot of insight into where they're coming from and where they're probably, I I I can guarantee you that Peter Alexander's sources called him and lied to him (laughs) and said, you know, which he then immediately, right, to counter, Um, you know, who was he working for at that moment? Was he working for the understanding of his audience or was he basically being used? And I would argue, um, you know, he was probably being used by people who were absolutely making stuff up.
0: And and that strikes me as as one of our biggest challenges right now, this whole concept of access journalism and what journalists are willing to either to uh, sell if it's okay for me to put it that way, uh, to listeners, readers, viewers, uh, or what they're willing to withhold so they can write a book a couple of years later (laughs) when the information isn't really news anymore. Yeah, well, I think there's a couple of things at work, as you know,
1: right? Which Mm -hmm. is you have to have something to say in your book. I remember when I wrote my memoir, they're all like, but don't you have a good story? I grew up middle class in Long Island. Like I have no, you know, nothing bad happened to me. Um, And so, you know, but people, as you know, want to hear, like, what's the juicy nugget that we're going to push? So you need that. You're going to have a book. Anybody who's ever written a book knows that. And I also think, you know, it's in some ways not complicated at all. When you have access, you can be a good reporter, right? It gives you good information. It gives you interesting information. It allows you every single day to say, nobody else is going to have this, but I have a special relationship. I'm an insider here. And I've got this, this is, I'm going to break news. So sometimes I think people get confused. Like you can't be a good reporter and also leverage your access. Your access journalists just, you know, leverage that access to sometimes report favorably, right? It helps, you know, they help their source in some capacity. It's very easy to do. Um, So I, I, you know, a lot of uh, there, a lot, there's been many, many words recently written about about you know that this person's a great reporter. Well, you can be a great reporter, but you can also and you can see lots of examples of this is a really good example. Uh, I'll use Maggie Haberman as an example since it's her book that's coming out and a lot has yep. been written about her, right? If of you know this is a similar protest she wrote as to the one the anti-Trump protest when January 6 was happening. There's not a soul who thought that when people storming the Capitol with a, a, a gallows. <laughs> like, I mean, like, that is the oddest take. And, and when she tweeted that, by the way, it wasn't, it wasn't like, oh my God, the first eight minutes of it where it looked like people's just a bit of a melee, right? It was literally the, the tweet she was responding to was someone talking about how absolutely horrific it was. And her her response was, well, it's you know, similar to the ones, right? Like, let me uh, what, so what is the framing of? What is this person's point of view? If that's your take, I- I'm just telling you, if you have a lot of sources, you're constantly trying to make sure and you're going to need them later for a book. When I do interviews, if I have something tough, I've got to ask somebody, I save it for the end. I can't have them yeah. walk out the first one minute of my interview. Oh, that's good guess. to know. Let's, no, start, yeah, let's, start, <laughs> let's start with all the hard questions. You know you, yeah. you know, you do everything and what's your favorite book and tell me a little bit about blah, blah, blah. Right. And then at the end, you're like, before you go couple of things we gotta get to, you know? And and then you 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 know you see what you're gonna get out of that. But you know they might be so mad. They're gonna rip the mic off and they're gonna storm out of the room. Right? That might happen. But yeah. by then you've gotten enough stuff to yeah. use. And so the idea that somehow you don't try to keep a source who's going to be an important person in your book happy by when you can just constantly you know thinking like, well this was very similar to the other protests. I don't understand why people are so find that so uh hard to believe. And you can break mm. news and be a good
0: reporter at times. Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah, and it's hard to it's hard to know who, who that that kind of framing serves anyway. Um and I'm I've been wanting to ask you this for a long time. Uh and notice I kept it until the uh, No I'm kidding. It's, <laughs> it's it's really not that kind of like <laughs> <laughs> um one of the the things that has most shocked me. In the last six years it's the extent to which the the media American mainstream media seems unconcerned about or uh, unwilling to challenge the threats to its own journalists. And, you know, for four or five years, they were called the enemy of the people. Uh, they some journalists were physically endangered, physically threatened. And yet. There was no push. It's almost like they they needed to normalize it. And and I'm not I'm not surprised that the mainstream media, you know, the the corporate side would necessarily have a problem with that. But it, the individual journalists who seem to have moved on um, when we are, as you said, in the midst of this crisis of democracy and, you know, a free press can't survive without democracy. So has that shocked you, surprised you, or did, do, have you seen this coming? No, I think you're in the middle of a big
1: story. And your relevance is you're in the middle of that big story. And hmm. I don't, you know, I I think it's a little bit of why people liked Trump, also hating Trump, right? Is that mm-hmm. you knew if you booked him, okay. you were going to get ratings and you were going to get numbers. And so... You know, it made sense, even though he was very hard to interview, and he's, you know, and you're going to get chaos and this and that. Mm -hmm. You know, that. So, I I think it's that. It's why you go and stand out in a hurricane, right? Because you, you 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 put yourself in danger. Because one, you've got to, you know, bring the story, but also because it's it's how you make your name. It's it's going to it's an it's important. Um, and and that danger in and of itself makes the story more dramatic. Right. I mean I think I think if you're really nervous about your reporters, you could just put a camera up, right? And yeah, you could. literally could just capture what was being said. Um so no, I, I I I don't know why I think that it was just too juicy. Um, you know, and you it's it, why just throw a up a camera shot of a of a podium that no one's there with a countdown clock? It yeah, just makes wow. no sense, right? So you're yes. clearly trying to. It's not news. It's not newsworthy. It's not even right. explanatory in any way. Right. It's just bullshit. And it's you know it's it was such a low in how we thought about covering these rallies, which were disturbing and scary for people. I was more scared sometimes for people in the audience.
0: Yeah. Because yes. they
1: didn't have the corporate entity behind them. That's right. You know, they didn't have, you know, uh, somebody there on their behalf. So, yeah, it's, it's just been very, very disappointing. But I think ratings conflict gets you ratings and, you know, ratings gets you success. And, um, you know, and slings and arrows can all also help you with your name recognition, Um, You know, so I think there's some of this weird, little weird symbiotic relationship, if that makes
0: Mm -hmm. sense. Um,
1: Yeah. I remember when Jonathan Carl wrote a book, it was called um, Front Row at the Trump Show. And I was just like, wow, who calls their job that? You have one of the most interesting and important jobs in journalism, period, full stop, which is... pretty cool job as a, just a category. yeah. And, like, and you see your job as you sit in the front row of the Trump show. Like, what an embarrassment. And yeah. the, it, was, it was poorly reviewed, but I actually didn't mind it. I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, but I just thought, like, wow, this is such a sad take on how journalists think about what they do. It really
0: is. And it's a huge shift. You know, uh, Helen Thomas was a White House correspondent, and now it seems like, well, I, according to reporters I've spoken to, like Brian Karam, the, the, the people who get those jobs now are like right out of school with no experience. So it's not even taken with the seriousness the job deserves. Uh, so it is kind of seen as jockeying for a position and getting the right quote. And, Listen, and- a
1: part of our business is that if mm-hmm. uh, I knew, if I knew if I got to cover big breaking news stories that that was going to help my career. I also yeah. wanted to go tell important stories, but, but, you know, so yes, there were certain parts of me that were also like being put on a big story is a big deal for your career. Absolutely. And so again, anybody who pretends otherwise is just mm-hmm. lying to you. You can still want to do a good job. You can still be a good mm-hmm. reporter. You just, that's the reality of it. You need to get on the big stories in order to get the next big story in order to get, you know, the, the name recognition and to to build your career and be moved into the next thing covering politics is one really good way to do that.
0: Yeah and that look i that makes sense and uh i think it it it's good to hold individual reporters accountable but also we have to understand that they they have to exist within this particular culture and a lot of them are getting uh their orders from the top and you know they have to follow the story that's in front of them but sometimes it does feel the 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 dangerous part is who's making the decision about what is worth covering. So we get Donald's rallies being covered, but not one of the major broadcast channels televised Joe Biden's extraordinarily important speech about what's happening in the right wing in this country and the dangers it's posing to our democracy. That's really disturbing.
1: Yeah. And those decisions, and and by the way, that list could go on and on, right? Mm -hmm. You'll get uh, a point of view. I mean, the number of things I've been in where it's a bunch of guys discussing women's rights or a bunch of guys usually that's how it goes a bunch of white guys talking about the black vote <laughs> you, know, you know where you're just like huh uh uh, uh, uh if you ever have uh, something happening in a minority community uh many news organizations discovered that they had decent size asian community but no reporters who mm-hmm. Fluent in a foreign language who could help them report on a breaking news story about violence especially among elderly um, Asian people who are being attacked um, you know in the streets like horrific but you know how do you get that story well you look around and you're like I don't have the reporting body to to, to do that so yeah how do you think about what you're gonna cover the how do you think about who you're gonna hire those are the that's the power of the of the ownership and the production team, right? What is the narrative? If that's back to framing, what is the narrative that we think is important today? There are meetings that literally say that. Today, the stories are this, you mm-hmm. know, what we cover. And you have a couple of people in those meetings who are like, actually, I think, could we think we could add in this voice or that voice? But, you know, often it's, we want to hear from these three people. Right. And that's How you get the mythology around, you know, Paul Ryan is a policy wonk and this person's really good on this and that. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just people's own bias in, you know, how they see something. And that's what's, that's the framing is what you get. You get their own bias writ large.
0: Yeah. And as you said, we are at, at, I, well, I don't know if you put it this way, but um, we're at this point, it feels like a crossroads to me, but we are talking about what's happening in this country in terms of democracy. We are using Language that's accurate and appropriate. Like white, we talk about white supremacy, we talk about fascism. You know, it took three years for the media to call a lie a lie, but now we're using the word. Oh, I lie. I should have won. I felt like I was helping to lead
1: the charge on that one. I feel like we should have all gotten fruit baskets when that happened. You're like, like, I don't. I get a fruit basket for finally after shaming and harassing people. No, it was like, like, how fucking you? long do I have to be doing? This? He called this just lying, right? Un- verifiably untrue, I think the New York Times like to say it's verifiably untrue, you're like,
0: it's just a lie it's three um, letters for God's sakes, you would think that they so would want to be saving so there so, so, but congratulations for finally making it happen, I got a fruit basket, I'm sure it's on its way, I'm sure it's, I'm sure George Soros is mm-hmm. uh, yes, sending me. us
1: all fruit baskets <laughs> And the uh, global elites. I think the global elites should be setting me a fruit basket soon. I think you should be getting several,
0: actually. But Please. I, they seem to be behind schedule yes. with mm-hmm. the checks and That's the fruit true. baskets, <laughs> and I still haven't gotten my check. So it's it's just it's a little disappointing. Not as not as well organized as as people would have us be right, right. on the globalist stage. But um, you know, I I so appreciate uh, how important that your work is and how how I just love the way you don't pull punches i guess that's the simplest way for me to put it because it it gives me faith that um that there are journalists who understand what's at stake who understand uh how to meet this very difficult situation we find ourselves in head on uh without fear or favor um and you model the kind of professional and is professionalism we really need right now. Uh, and I feel like you're, you're leading the charge there. And, uh, I know, you know, obviously your, your show is, I love your show. Uh, matter of fact, um, you know, you, you dig deep on important issues that may not be on everybody's radar all the time, uh, that need to be centered. Um, and like even, you know, uh some of your uh interviews on real sports, uh, you know, you recently interviewed Carrie Blakinger, which was just uh, like it came out of left field. Right? <laughs> like, what is this about? And you know, you got in this incredibly important story about the horrible state of our prisons through ice the work. Sk- <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, through
1: an ice skater. She was an ice through skater an ice skater. <laughs> That's how you come. real sports. has got to be about <laughs> sports in there somewhere.
0: But it was phenomenal. Yeah, and, and, and I think th- the ways in which you approach things, really they make them accessible for people and help people understand just, just what is at stake mm-hmm. um, and where we're not paying attention because there's so much going on. You know, yeah. The world is kind of in a crazy place right now. Um, and I, I, I also can't think of a better time for this documentary. Yeah, that's
1: good. And it's, you know, I think it does really, in a way, I feel like we're the end piece of what Rosa Parks was going for, you know, like like someone else would pick up the threads and say, you know what, it's not forgotten. The facts are important. And maybe no one understood the record at the moment. But at some point they will. And I think that we're putting down that flag um, with this doc.
0: Well, again, it's the rebellious life of Rosa Parks. It's brilliant. It's a necessary watch, and um, you know everybody should not just be watching it but promoting it. Uh, so, I really appreciate your taking time to be here today. It was so great to meet you and I to was, get to spend some time with you yeah, and uh, say hi to your horses and your I puppy will. And The
1: dogs. We were yeah. outside.
0: <laughs> Thanks for um, having me. Appreciate all right. Thank it. you so much. You Take care. You. Bye. Thank you so much to Soledad O'Brien. That was such a great conversation. I learned so much from the documentary, The Rebellious Life of Rosa Parks, uh, that I had known about what is very recent American history and that all of us should be familiar with, uh, especially uh, those white people among us who um, don't. Understand just what people like Rosa Parks went through, what they represent, and where we are as a country in terms of our very serious racial divisions and white supremacy, white privilege, and all of the rest of it. So please watch it. It's streaming on Peacock, uh, The Rebellious Life of Rosa Parks. Uh, Soledad was an executive producer. Uh, she, again, also is the host of matter of fact with soledad o'brien and she's a correspondent for real sports with brian gumbel um both shows are excellent and thank you to all of you for joining us this evening i so appreciate you being here uh we will be back next tuesday 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific with the Nerd Avengers uh, grappling with whatever news has come up in the meantime. And of course, uh, join us again next Thursday for our regular show. That's at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Both of those you can see at youtube.com slash politicon. Uh, And when you go to Politicon's YouTube page, please subscribe to Politicon so we can increase our number of subscribers. That's always very helpful, doesn't cost anything. Like the episode, and if you click on this bell, uh, you will be sure to be alerted every time a new video drops. And and it's not just our, our regular shows, we have our emergency sessions, we live stream. Uh, The January 6th committee, we live stream any important speeches that might be happening uh, and, you know, anything else that comes up. Plus uh, the short videos I've been doing kind of in between to to, to try to stay ahead of the chaos. Um, And of course, you can listen to this in podcast form on Apple or wherever you find your pod or wherever you like to listen to your podcast and if you give the show a five-star review that would be fantastic because it helps everybody else find the show and that's that's our goal here as we are very short time out uh from the 2022 midterm elections which again hate to be repetitive are the most consequential elections of our lifetime uh thank you all again for being here for your comments i so appreciate of you uh, and I will see you next Tuesday in the meantime have a great weekend stay safe and be kind